welcome to top 100 fairy tales your pets your kids and you should listen to heart of ice by brothers grim a french fairy tale recording by Nobrosta. once upon a time there lived a king and a queen who were foolish beyond all telling but nevertheless they were vastly fond of one another it is true that certain spiteful people were heard to say that this way only one proof the more of their exceeding foolishness but of course you will understand that these were not their own countries since after all they were a king and a queen and up to this time all things had proposed with them for in those days the one thing to be thought of in governing a kingdom was to keep well with all the fairies and enchanters and on no account the stint of the cakes the else of ribbon and similar trifles which were their due and about all things when there was a christening to remember to invite every single one good bad or indifferent to the ceremony now the foolish queen had one little son who was just going to be christened and was several months she had been hard at work in preparing an enormous list of the names of those who were to be invited but she quite forgot that it would take nearly as long to read it over as it had taken to write it out so when the moment of the christening arrived the king to whom the task had been entrusted had barely reached the end of the second page and his tongue was tripping with fatigue and haste as he repeated the usual formula i conjure and pray you fairy so and so or enchanter such a one to honor me with a visit and graciously bestow your gifts upon my son to make matters worse word was brought to him that the fairies asked on the first page had already arrived and were waiting impatiently in the great hall and grumbling that nobody was there to receive them thereupon he gave up the list in despair and hurried to greet those whom he had succeeded in asking imploring their goodwill so humbly that most of them were touched and promised that would would to his son no harm but there happened to be among them a fairy from a far country about whom they knew nothing though her name had been written on the first page of the list this fairy was annoyed that after having taken the trouble to come so quickly there had been no one to receive her or help her to alight from the great ostrich on which she had travelled from her distant home and now she began to mutter to herself in the most alarming way oh pray away said she your son will never be anything to boast of say what you will he will be nothing but a mannequin no doubt she would keep gone on longer in this train and given the unhappy little prince half a dozen undesirable gifts if it had not been for the good fairy genista who held the kingdom under her special protection and who luckily hurried in just in time to prevent further mischief when she had by the compliments and entreats specified the unknown fairy and persuaded her to say no more she gave the king a hint that now was the time to distribute the presents after which ceremony they all took their departure excepting the fairy genista who then went to see the queen and said to her a nice mess you seem to have made of this business madam why did you not consent to consult me but foolish people like you always think they could do without help or advice and i observed that in spite of all my goodness to you you had not even the civility to invite me 
Ah, oh, dear madam, cried the king, throwing himself at her feet. Did I ever have time to get as far as your name? See where I put in this mark when I abandoned the hopeless undertaking which I had but just begun. There, there, said the fairy, I am not offended. I do not allow myself to be put out by trifles like that with people I really am fond of. But now about your son. I have saved him from a great many disagreeable things, but you must let me take him away and to take care of him, and you will not see him again until he is all covered with fur. At these mysterious words, the king and queen burst into tears, for they lived in such a hot climate themselves that how or why the prince should come to be covered with fur they could not imagine, and thought it must pertain some great misfortune to him. However, Genista told them not to disquiet themselves. If I left him to you to bring up, said she, you would be certain to make him as foolish as yourselves. I do not even intend to let him know that he is your son. As for you, you had better give your minds to governing your kingdom properly. So saying, she opened the window, and catching up the little prince, cradle, cradle and all, she glided away in the air, as if she were skating up on ice, leaving the king and queen in the greatest affliction. They consulted everyone who came near them as to what the fairy could possibly have meant by saying that when they saw their son again, he would be covered with fur. But nobody could offer any solution of the mystery. Only they all seemed to agree that this must be something frightful, and the king and queen made themselves more miserable than ever, and wandered about their palace in a way to make anyone pity them. Meantime, the fairy had carried of the little prince to her own castle, and placed him under the care of a young peasant woman, whom she bewitched so, as to make her think that his new baby was one of her own children. So the prince grew up healthy and strong, leading the simple life of a young peasant, for the fairy thought that he could have no better training. Only as he grew older she kept him more and more with herself, then his mind might be cultivated and exercised as well as his body. But her care did not, did not cease there. She resolved that he should be tried by hardships and disappointments and the knowledge of his fellow men. For indeed she knew the prince would need every adventure, advantage that she could give him. Since though he increased in years, he did not increase in height, but remained the tiniest of princes. However, in spite of this, he was exceedingly active and well-formed, and altogether so handsome and agreeable, that the smallest smallness of his stature was of no real consequence. The prince was perfectly aware that he was called by the ridiculous name of Mannequin, but he consoled himself by vowing that, happen what might, he would make it illustrious. In order to carry out her plans for his welfare, the fairy now began to send Prince Mannequin the most wonderful dreams of adventure by sea and land, and of these adventures he himself was always the hero. Sometimes he rescued a lovely princess from some terrible danger, again he earned the kingdom by some brave deed, until at last he longed to go away and seek his fortune in a far country where his humble birth would not prevent his gaining honor and riches by his courage, and it was with a heart full of ambitious projects that he rode one day into a great city not far from the fairy's castle. As he had set out intending to hunt in the surrounding forest, he was quite simply dressed, 
and carried only a bow and arrows and a light spear. But even thus, arrayed, he looked graceful and distinguished. As he entered the city, he saw that the inhabitants were all racing with one accord towards the marketplace, and he also turned his horse in the same direction, curious to know what was going forward. When he reached the spot, he found that certain foreigners of strange and outlandish appearance were about to make a proclamation to the assembled citizens, and he hastily pushed his way into the crowd until he was near enough to hear the words of the venerable old man who was their spokesman. <clears throat> Let the whole world know that he who can reach the summit of the ice mountain shall receive as his reward not only the incomparable Sabila, fairest of the fair, but also all the realms of which she is queen. Here, continued the old man after he had made this proclamation, here is the list of all those princes who, struck by the beauty of the princess, have perished in the attempt to win her, and here is the list of these who have just entered upon the high emprise. Prince Mannequin was seized with a violent desire to inscribe his name among the others, but the remembrance of his dependent positions and his lack of wealth held him back. But while he hesitated, the old man, with many respectful ceremonies, unveiled the portrait of the lovely Sabella, which was carried by some of the attendants, and after one glance at it, the prince delayed no longer, but rushing forward, demanded permission to add his name to the list. When they saw his tiny stature and his simple attire, the strangers looked at each other doubtfully, not knowing whether to accept or refuse him. But the prince said haughtily, Give me the paper, that I may sign it, and they are it. What between admiration for the princess and annoyance at the hesitation shown by her ambassadors, the prince was too much agitated to choose any other name than the one by which he was always known. But when, after all the grand titles of the other princes, he simply wrote, Mannequin, the ambassadors broke into shouts of laughter. Miserable wretches, cried the princess. But for the presence of the lovely portrait, I would cut off your heads. But he suddenly remembered that, after all, it was a funny name, and that he had not yet had time to make it famous. So he was calm, and inquired the way to the Princess Sabilla's country. Though his heart did not fail him in the least, still he felt there were many difficulties before him, and he resolved to set out at once, without even taking leave of the fairy, for fear she might try to stop him. Everybody in the town who knew him made great fun of the idea of mannequins undertaking such an expedition, and it even came to the ears of the foolish king and queen, who laughed over it more than any of the others, without having in that idea that the presumptuous mannequin was their only son. Meantime, the princess was traveling on, though the direction he had received for his journey were known of the clearest. Four hundred leagues north of mountain Caucasus, you will receive your orders and instructions for the conquest of the ice mountain. Fine marching orders those for a man starting from a country near where Japan is nowadays. However, he fared eastward, avoiding all towns, lest the people should laugh at his name, for you see he was not a very experienced traveler, and had not yet learned to enjoy a joke even if it were against himself. At night he slept in the woods, and at first he lived upon wild fruits, but the fairy, who was keeping a benevolent eye upon him, thought 
it would never do to let him be half-starved in that way, so she took to feeding him with all sorts of good things while he was asleep. And the prince wondered very much that when he was awake he never felt hungry. True to her plan, the fairy sent him various adventures to prove his courage, and he came successfully through them all. Only in his last fight with a furious monster, rather, rather like a tiger, he had the ill luck to, though, to lose his horse. However, nothing daunted, he struggled on one foot, and at last reached the seaport. Here he found a boat sailing for the coast which he desired to reach, and having just enough money to pay his passage, he went on board and they started. But after some days a fearful storm came on, which completely wrecked the little ship, and the priest only saved his life by swimming alone, long, long way to the only land that was inside, and which proved to be a desert island. He had lived by fishing and hunting, always hoping that the good fairy would presently rescue him. One day, as he was looking sadly out to sea, he became aware of a curious-looking boat which was drifting slowly toward the shore, and which presently ran into a little creek and there struck fast in the sand. Prince Mannequin rushed down eagerly to ex examine it, and saw with amazement that the masts and spears were all branched and covered thickly with leaves until it looked like a little wood. Thinking from the stillness that there could be one on board, the prince pushed aside the branches and sprang over the side and found himself surrounded by the crew who lay motionless as dead men and in a most deplorable condition. They too had become almost like trees and were growing to the deck or to the mast or to the sides of the vessel or to whatever they had happened to be touching when the enchantment fell upon them. Mannequin was struck with pity for their miserable plight and set to work with might and main to relieve them. With the sharp point of one of his arrows he gently detached their hands and feet from the wood which held them fast and carried them on shore, one after another, where he rubbed their rigid limbs and bathed them with infusions of various herbs with such success that after a few days they recovered perfectly and were as fit to manage a boat as ever. You may be sure that the good fairy Genista had something to do with this marvelous cure, and she also put in the prince's head to rub the boat itself with the same magic herbs, which cleared it entirely, and not before it was time, for, and the rate at which it was growing before, it would very soon have become a forest. The gratitude of the sailors was extreme, and they willingly promised to land the prince up on any coast he pleased. But when he questioned them about the extraordinary thing that had happened to them and to their ship, they could in no way explain it, except that they said that they were passing along a thickly wooded coast, a sudden gust of wind had reached them from the land and enveloped them in a dense of cloud of dust, after which everything in the boat that was not metal had sprouted and blossomed, as the prince had seen, and that... They themselves had grown gradually numb and heavy, and had finally lost all consciousness. Prince Mannequin was deeply interested in this curious story, and collected a quantity of the dust from the bottom of the boat, which he carefully preserved, thinking that its strange property might one day stand him in a good stead. Then they joyfully left the desert island, and after a long and prosperous voyage over calm seas, they at length came in sight of land and resolved to go on shore, 
not only to take in fresh stock of water and provisions, but also to find out, if possible, where they were and in what direction to proceed. As they neared the coast, they wondered if this could be another uninhabited land, for no human beings could be distinguished, and yet that something was stirring became evident, for in the dust, clouds that moved near the ground, small dark forms were dimly visible. These appeared to be assembled at the exact spot where they were preparing to run ashore. And what was their surprise to find they were nothing more, no less than large and beautiful spaniels, some mounted and sentries, other grouped in companies and regiments, all eagerly watching their disembarkation. When they found that Prince Mannequin, instead of saying, shoot them, as they had feared, said, hi, good dog. In a thoroughly friendly and ingratiating way, that crowded round him with a great wagging of tails and giving of paws, and very soon made him understand that they wanted him to leave his men with the boat and follow them. The prince was so curious to know more about them that he agreed willingly, so often arranged with the sailors to wait for him fifteen days, and then, if he had not come back, to go on their way without him. He set out with his new friends. Their way lay inland, and Mannequin noticed with great surprise that the fields were well cultivated, and the carts and ploughs were drawn by horses or oxen, just as they might have been in any other country, and when they passed any village the cottages were trim and pretty, and an air of prosperity was everywhere. At one of the villages a dainty little repast was set before the prince, and while he was eating a chariot was brought, drawn by two splendid horses, which were driven with great skill by a large spaniel. In this carriage he continued his journey very comfortably, passing many similar equipages upon the road, and being always most courteously salutated by the spaniels who occupied them. At last they drew rapidly into a large town, which Prince Mannequin had no doubt was the capital of the kingdom. News of his approach had evidently been received, for all the inhabitants were at their doors and windows, and all the little spaniels had climbed up on the wall and gate to see him arrive. The prince was delighted with the hearty welcome they gave him, and looked around them with the deepest interest. After passing through a few bright streets, well paved and adorned with an avenues of fine trees, they drove into the courtyard of a grand palace, which was full of spaniels who were evidently soldiers. The king's bodyguard, thought the prince to himself, as he returned their salutation. And then the carriage stopped, and he was shown into the presence of the king, who lay up on a rich Persian carpet surrounded by several little spaniels, who very occupied in chasing away the flies, lest they should disturb his majesty. He was the most beautiful of all spaniels, with the look of sadness in his large eyes, which, however, quite disappeared as he sprang up to welcome Prince Mannequin with very demonstration of delight, after which he made a sign to his courtiers, who came one by one to pay their respects to the visitor. The prince thought that he would find himself puzzled as to how he should carry on a conversation, but as soon as he had and the king were once more left alone, a secretary of state was sent for who wrote from His Majesty's dictation a most polite speech, in which he regretted much that they were unable to converse, except in writing, the language of dogs being difficult to understand. As for the writing, it had remained the same as the prince's own. 
Mannequin thereupon wrote a suitable reply and then begged the king to satisfy his curiosity about all the strange things he had seen and heard since his landing. This appeared to awaken sad recollections in the king's mind, but he informed the prince that he was called King Bayard, and that a fairy, whose kingdom was next his own, had fallen violently in love with him and had done all she could to persuade him to marry her, but he could not do as himself was the devoted lover of the queen of the Spice Island, Islands. Finally, the fairy, furious at the indifference with which her love was treated, had reduced him to the state in which the prince found him, leaving him unchanged in mind, but deprived of the power of speech, and not content with wreaking her vengeance upon the kings alone, she had condemned all his subjects to a similar fate, saying, Bark, and run upon four feet, until the time comes when virtue shall be rewarded by love and fortune, which, as the poor king remarked, was very much the same thing as she had said, remain a spaniel forever and ever. Prince Mannequin was quite of the same opinion, nevertheless he said what she would all have said in the same circumstances. Your Majesty must have patience. He was indeed deeply sorry for poor King Bayard, and said all the consoling things he could think of, promising to aid him with all his might if there was anything to be done. In short, they became firm friends, and the king proudly displayed to Mannequin the portrait of the Queen of the Spice Island, and he quite agreed that it was worthwhile to wait to go through anything for the sake of a creature so lovely. Prince Mannequin in his turn told his own story, and the great undertaking up which he had set out, and King Bayard was able to give him some valuable instructions as to which would the best way for him to proceed, and then they went together to the palace where the boat had been left. The sailors were delighted to see the prince again, though they had known that he was safe, and when they had taken on board all the supplies which the king had sent for them, they started once more. The king and prince parted with much regret, and the former insisted that Mannequin should take with him one of his own pages, named Musta, who was charged to attend to him everywhere and serve him faithfully, which he promised to do. The wind being favorable, they were soon out of hearing of the general pow of regret from the whole army, which had been given by order of the king as a great compliment, and it was not long before the land was entirely lost to view. They met with no further adventures worth speaking of, and presently found themselves within two leagues of the harbor for which they were making. The prince, however, thought it would suit him better to land where he was, so as to avoid the town, since he had no money left and was very doubtful as to what he should do next. So the sailors set him at Mu and Mustad on shore, and then went back sorrowfully to their ship, while the prince and his attendant walked off in the what looked to them the most promising direction. They soon reached a lovely green meadow on the border of a wood, which seemed to them so pleasant after their long voyage, so they sat down to rest in the shade and amused themselves by watching the gambols and antics of a pretty tiny monkey in the trees close by. The prince presently became so fascinated by it and that he sprang up and tried to catch it, but it eluded his grasp and kept just 
off of her arm's reach until it had made him promise to follow wherever it led him. And then it sprang up on his shoulder and whispered in his ear. We have no money, my poor mannequin, and we are all together badly off, and at last to know what to do next. Yes, indeed, answered the prince ruefully, and I have nothing to give you, no sugar or biscuits, or anything that you like, my pretty one. Since you are so thoughtful for me, and so patient about your own affairs, said the little monkey, I will show you the way to the golden rock, only you must leave Musta to wait for you here. Prince Mannequin agreed willingly, and then the little monkey sprang from his shoulder to the nearest tree and began to run through wood from branch to branch, crying, Follow me! This the prince did not find quite so easy, but the little monkey waited for him and showed him the easiest places until presently the wood grew thinner and they came out into a little clear grassy space at the foot of a mountain in the midst of which stood a single rock about ten feet high. When they were quite close to it, the little monkey said, This stone looks pretty hard, but give it a blow with your spear, and let us see what will happen. So the prince took his spear and gave the rock an, a vigorous dig, which split off several pieces, and showed that though their surface was thinly coated with stone, inside it was one solid mass of pure gold. Thereupon the little monkey said, laughing at, at his astonishment, I make you a present of what you have broken off. Take as much of it as you think proper. The prince thanked her gratefully and picked up one of the smallest of the lumps of gold. As he did so, the little monkey was suddenly transformed into a tall and gracious lady who said to him, if you are always as kind and preserving and easily contented as you are now, you may hope to accomplish the most difficult tasks. Go on your way and have no fear that you will be troubled any more for lack of gold, for that little piece which you modestly chose shall never grow less, use it as much as you will. But that you may see the danger you have escaped by your moderation, come with me. So saying, she led him back into the wood by a different path, and he saw that it was full of men and women. Their faces were pale and haggard, and they ran hither and thither, seeking madly up on the ground or in the air, starting at every sound, pushing and trampling up one another in their frantic eagerness to find the way to the golden rock. You see how they toil, said the fairy, but it is all of no avail. They will end by dying of despair, as hundreds have done before them. As soon as they had got back to the place where they had left Musta, the fairy disappeared, and the prince and his faithful squire, who had greeted him with every demonstration of joy, took the nearest way to the city. Here they stayed several days, while the prince provided himself with horses and attendants, and made many inquiries about the princess Sabella, and the way to her kingdom, which was still so far away that he could hear but little, and that of that bogus descriptions. But when he presently reached Mount Caucasus, it was quite different matter. Here they seemed to talk of nothing but the Princess Sabella, and strangers from all parts of the world were traveling towards her father's court. The prince 
heard plenty of assurance as to her beauty and her riches, but he also heard of the immense number of his rivals and their power. One brought an army at his back, another had vast treasures, a third was as handsome and accomplished as it was possible to be, while as to poor Mannequin, he had nothing but his determination to succeed, his faithful spaniel, and his ridiculous name, which last was hardly likely to help him. But as he could not alter it, he wisely determined not to think of it any more. After joining for two whole months, they came at last to Trelentin, the capital of the Princess Sabella's kingdom. And here he heard dismal stories about the Ice Mountain, and how none of those who had attempted to climb it had never ever come back. He heard also the story of King Farda Kimbras, Sabella's father. It appeared that he, being a rich and powerful monarch, had married a lovely princess named Burbantine, and they were as happy as the day was long, so happy as they were out sledging one day, were foolish enough to defy fate to spoil their happiness. We shall see about that, grumbled an old hag who sat by the wayside blowing her fingers to keep them warm. The king thereupon was very angry and wanted to punish the woman, but the queen prevented him, saying, Alas, sir, do not let us make bad words. No doubt this is a fairy. You are right there, said the old woman, and immediately she stood up, and as they gazed at her in horror, she grew gigantic and terrible, her stuff turned to a fiery dragon with outstretched wings, her ragged cloak to a golden mantle, and her wooden shoes to two bundles of rockets. You are right there, and you will see what will come of your fine goings-on, and remember the fairy Gorgonzola. So saying, she mounted the dragon and flew off, the rockets shooting in all directions and leaving long trails of sparks. In vain did Farda Kimbras and Burbantin beg her to return, and endeavor, by their humble apologies to pacify her, she never so much as looked at them, and was very soon out of sight, leaving them a prey to all kinds of dismal forebodings. Very soon after this, the queen had a little daughter, who was the most beautiful creature ever seen. All the fairies of the north were invited to her christening, and warned against the malicious Gorgonzola. She was also invited, but she neither came to the banquet nor received her present. But as soon as all the others were seated at the table, after bestowing their gifts upon the little princess, she stole into the palace, disguised as a black cat, and hid herself under the cradle, under the nurses and the cradle rockers had all turned their backs. And then she sprang out, and an instant had stolen the little princess's heart and made her escape, only being chased by a few dogs and scullions on her way across the courtyard. Once outside, she mounted her chariot and flew straight away to the North Pole, where she shut up her stolen treasure on the summit of the Ice Mountain, and surrounded it with so many difficulties that she felt quite easy about its remaining there as long as the princess lived, and then she went home chuckling at her success. As to the other fairies, they went home after the banquet without discovering that anything was amiss, and so the king and the queen were quite happy. Sabella grew prettier day by day. She learned everything a princess ought to know without the slightest trouble, and yet something always seemed lacking to make her perfectly charming. She had an exquisite voice, but whether her sons were grave or gay it did not matter. 
she did not seem to know what they meant, and everyone who heard her said, She certainly sings perfectly, but there is no tenderness, no heart in her voice. Poor Sabella! How could there be when her heart was far away on the Aos Mountains? And it was just the same with all other things that she did. As time went on, in spite of the admiration of the whole court and the blind fondness of the king and queen, it became more and more evident that something was fatal wrong, for those who love no one cannot long be loved. And at last the king called a general assembly and invited the fairies to attend. Then they might, if possible, find out what was the matter. After explaining their grief as well as he could, he ended up by begging them to see the princess for themselves. It's certain, said he, that something is wrong. What it is, I don't know how to tell you, but in some way your work is imperfect. They all assured him that, so far as they knew, everything had been done for the princess, and they had forgotten nothing that they could bestow on so good a neighbor as the king had been to them. After this, they went to see Sabella, but they had no sooner entered her presence then they cried out with an echo, Oh, horror, horror, she has no heart. On hearing this frightful announcement, the king and queen gave a cry of despair and entreated the fairies to find some remedy for such an unheard of misfortune. Thereupon, their eldest fairy consulted her book of magic, which she always carried about with her, handed her girdle by a thick silver chain, and there she found out at once that it was Gorgonzola who had stolen the princess's heart, and also discovered that the wicked old fairy had done with it. What shall we do? What shall we do? cried the king and queen in one breath. You must certainly suffer much annoyance from seeing and loving Sabella, who is nothing but a beautiful image, replied the fairy, and this must go on for a long time, but I think I see that in the end she will once more regain the her heart. My advice is that you shall at once cause her portrait to be sent all over the world and promise her hand and all her possessions to the prince who is successful in reaching her heart. Her beauty alone is sufficient to engage all the princes of the world in the quest. This was accordingly done, and Prince Mannequin heard that already five hundred princes had perished in the snow and ice not to mention their squares and pages, and that more continued to arrive daily, eager to try their fortune. After some consideration, he determined to present himself at court, but his arrival made no stir, and his retinue was as inconsiderable as his stature, and the splendor of his rivals was great enough to throw even farther Kimbras himself into the shade. However, he paid his respects to the king very gracefully and asked permission to kiss the hand of the princess in the, in the usual manner. But when he said he was called mannequin, the king could hardly repress a smile, and the princess who stood by open shouted with laughter. Turning to the king, Prince Mannequin said with great dignity, Pray, love, if it pleases your majesty. I am glad that it is in my power to afford you any amusement. But I am not a plaything for this gentleman, and I must beg them to dismiss any ideas of that kind from their minds at once. And with it, 
he turned upon to the one who had laughed the loudest and proudly challenged him to a single combat. This prince, who was called Fadasa, accepted the challenge very scornfully, mocking at Mannequin, one whom he felt sure had no chance against himself. But the meeting was arranged for the next day. When Prince Mannequin quitted the king's presence, he was conducted to the audience hall of the Princess Abella. The sight of so much beauty and magnificence almost took his breath away for an instant, but recovering himself with an effort, he said, Lovely princess, irresistibly drawn by the beauty of your portrait, I come from the other end of the world to offer my services to you. My devotion knows no bounds, but my absurd name has already involved me into a quarrel with one of your courtiers. Tomorrow I am to fight this ugly, overgrown prince, and I beg you to honor the combat with your presence, and prove to the world that there is nothing in a name, and that you deign to accept Mannequin as your knight. When it came to, the, to this, the princess could not help being amused, for, though she had no heart, she was not without humor. However, she answered graciously that she accepted with pleasure, which encouraged the prince to entreat father that she would not show any favor to his adversary. Alas, said she, a favor, I favor none of these foolish people who weary me with their sentiment and their folly. I do very well as I am, and yet from one year's end to another they talk of nothing but delivering me from some imaginary affliction. Not a word to do, do I understand of all their pretense about love, and who knows what dull things beside, which I declare you I cannot even remember. Mannequin was quick enough to gather from his speech that to amuse and interest the princess would be a far surer way of gaining her favor than to add himself to the list of those who continually teased her about that mysterious thing called love, which she was so incapable of comprehending. So he began to talk of his rivals, and found in each of them something to make merry over, in which diversion the princess joined him heartily, and so well did he succeed in his attempt to amuse her, that before very long she declared that all of the people at court he was the one to whom she preferred to talk. The following day, at the time appointed for the combat, when the king and queen and the princess had taken their places, and the whole court and the whole town were assembled to see the show, Prince Fadasa rode into the list of magnificent armed and courted, followed by twenty-four squares and hundred men-at-arms, each one leading a splendid horse, while Prince Mannequin entered from the other side armed only with his spear and followed by the faithful Musta. The contrast between the two champions was so great there was a shout of laughter from the whole assembly, but when, at the sound of a trumpet, the combatants rushed upon each other, and Mannequin, eluding the blow aimed at him, succeeded in thrusting Prince Fadasa from his horse, and pinning him to the sand with his spear, it changed to a murmur of admiration. So soon as he had him at his mercy, however, Mannequin turning to the princess, assured her that he had no desire to kill anyone who called himself her courtier, and then bebade the furious and humiliated Fadasa rise and thank the princess to whom he owed his life. Then, amid the sounding of the trumpets and the shouting of the people, 
he and Musta retired gravely from the list. The king soon sent for him to congratulate him upon his success and to offer him a lodging in the palace, which he joyfully accepted, while the princess expressed a wish to have Musta brought to her, and when the prince sent for him, she was so delighted with his courtly manners and his marvelous intelligence that she entreated Mannequin to give him to her for her own. The prince consented with alacrity, not only out of politeness, but because he foresaw that to have a faithful friend always near the princess might some day be of a great service to him. All these events made Prince Mannequin a person of much more consequence at the court. Very soon after, they arrived up on the frontier the ambassador of a very powerful king who sent to Farda Kinbrust the following letter, at the same time demanding permission to enter the capital and state to receive the answer. I, Branda Timor, to Farda Kinbrust send greeting, if I had before this time seen the portrait of your beautiful daughter Sabella, I should not have permitted all these adventures and petty princes to be dancing attendance and getting themselves frozen with the absurd idea of meriting her hand. For myself, I am not afraid of any arrivals, and now I have declared my intention of marrying your daughter, no doubt they will at once withdraw their pretensions. My ambassadors has orders, therefore, to make arrangements for the princess to come and be married to me without delay, for I attach no importance at all the fairy girl of nonsense which you have caused to be published all over the world about this ice mountain. If the princess really has no heart, be assured that I shall not concern myself about it, since, if anybody can help to discover one, it is myself, my worthy father-in-law, farewell. The reading of this letter embarrassed and displeased Father Kinbras and Birbantin immensely, while the princess was furious at the insolence of the demand. They all three resolved that its contents must be kept a profound secret until they could decide what to reply it should, should be sent. But Musta contrived to send word of all had passed to Prince Mannequin. He was naturally alarmed and indignant, and after thinking it over a little, he begged an audience of the princess and led the conversation so cunningly up to the subject that was uppermost in her thoughts as well as his own that she presently told him about the matter and asked his advice as to what it would be best to do. This was exactly what he had not been able to decide him for himself. However, he replied that he should advise her to gain a little time by promising her answer after the grand entry for the ambassador, and this was accordingly done. The ambassador did not all like being put off after that fashion but he was obliged to be content and only said very arrogantly that so soon as his equipage arrived, as he expected they would do very shortly, he would give all the people of the city and the stranger princess with whom it was inundated an idea of the power and the magnificence of his master. Mannequin in despair resolved that he would once beg the assistance of the kind fairy against them. He often thought of her, and always with gratitude, but from the moment of her setting out that he had determined to seek her aid only at the greatest occasions. That very night, when he had fallen asleep quite worn out of thinking all the difficulties of the situation, he dreamed that fairies stood beside him and said, Mannequin, 
you have done very well so far. Continue to please me and you shall always find good friends when you need them most. As for this affair with the ambassador, you can assure Sabella that she may look forward tranquilly to his triumphal entry, since it will all turn out well for her in the end. The prince tried to throw himself at her feet to thank her, but woke up to find it was all a dream. Nevertheless, he took fresh courage and went next day to see the princess, to whom he gave many mysterious assurances that all would yet be well. He even went so far as to ask her if she would not be grateful to anyone who would rid her of the insolent Brenda anymore, to which she replied that her gratitude would know no bounds. Then he wanted to know what would be her best wish for the person who was lucky enough to accomplish it, to which she said she would wish to be as an insensible to the folly called love as she was herself. This was indeed a crushing speech to make to such a devoted lover as Prince Mannequin, but he concealed the pain it caused him with a great courage. And now the ambassador sent to say that on the very next day he would come in state to receive his answer, and from the earliest dawn on the inhabitants were astir to secure the best places for the grand side. But the good fairy Genista was providing them an amount of amusement they were far from expecting, for she so enchanted the eyes of all the spectators that when the ambassador George's procession appeared, the splendid uniform seemed to them miserable rags that the beggar would have been ashamed to wear. The prancing horses appeared as wretched skeletons hardly able to drag one leg after another, while their trappings which really sparkled with gold and jewels, looked like all sheepskins that would not have been good enough for a poor horse. The pages resembled the ugly sweeps. The trumpets gave no more sounds than whistle made of onion stalks or cows wrapped in paper, while the train of fifty carriages looked no better than fifty donkey carts. In the last of these sat the ambassador with a haughty and scornful air which he considered becoming in the representative of so powerful a monarch. For this was the crowning point of the absurdity of the whole procession, that all who took part in it were the expression of vanity and self-satisfaction and pride in their own appearance, and all their surroundings which they believed their splendor amply justified. The water and holes of derision from the whole crowd rose even louder and louder as the extraordinary cortege advanced and at last reached the ears of the king as he waited in the audience hall and before the procession reached the palace he had been informed of its nature and supposing that it must be intended as an insult he ordered the gates to be closed. You may imagine the fury of the ambassador when after all his pomp and pride the king absolutely and unaccountably refused to receive at him. He raved wildly both against king and people, and the cortege retired in great confusion, jeered and pelted with stones and mud by the ingrated crowd. It's needless to say that he left the country as fast as horses could carry him, but not before he had declared war with the most terrible menaces, threatening to devastate the country with fire and sword. Some days after, this disastrous embassy King Bayard sent couriers to Prince Mannequin with a most friendly letter, offering his services in a difficulty, 
and incurring with the deepest interest how he fared. Mannequin at once replied, relating all that had happened since they parted, not forgetting to mention the event which had just involved Farnda Kingbras and Brandadimor in this deadly quarrel, and he ended by entreating his faithful friend to dispatch a few thousand of his patron spaniels to his assistance. Neither the king, the queen, nor the princess could in the least understand the amazing conduct of Brandadimor ambassador. Nevertheless, the preparation for the war went forward briskly, and all the princes who had not gone on towards the ice mountain offered their services, at the same time demanding all the best appointments in the king's army. Mannequin was one of the first to volunteer, but he only asked to go as assigned the camp to the commander-in-chief, who was a gallant soldier and celebrated for his victories. As soon as the army could be got together, it was marched to the frontier, where it met the opposing force headed by Brandedimore himself, who was full of fury, determined to avenge the insult to his ambassador and to possess himself of the Princess Sabella. All the army of Farther Kinbas could do, being so heavily outnumbered, was to act upon the defensive and before long mannequin won the esteem of the officers for his ability and of the soldiers for his courage and care for their welfare, and in all the skirmishes which he conducted, he had the good fortune to vanquish the enemy. At last, Brandedimore engaged the whole army in a terrific conflict, and though the troops of Farther Kimbras fought with desperate courage, their general was killed, and they were defeated and forced to retreat with immense loss. Mannequin did wonders, a half a dozen times turned the retreating forces and beat back the enemy, and he afterwards collected troops enough to keep them in check until the severe winter setting in put an end of hostilities for a while. He then returned to the court where consternation reigned. The king was in despair at the death of his trusty general, and ended up by imploring Mannequin to take the command of the army and his counsel was followed in a whole affairs to the court. He followed up his former plan of amusing the princess, and on no account reminded her of that tedious thing called love, so that she was always glad to see him, and the winter slipped by gaily for both of them. The prince was all while secretly making plans for the next campaign. He received pride intelligence of the arrival of a strong reinforcements of spaniels, to whom he sent orders to post themselves along the frontier without attracting attention, and as soon as he possibly could hold a consultation with their commander, who was an old and experienced warrior. Following his advice, he decided to have a pitched battle as soon as the enemy advanced, and this Brand Edimor lost not a moment in doing, as he was perfectly persuaded that he was now going to make an end of the war and utterly vanquish Farda Kinbras. But no sooner he had given the order to charge that the Spaniels, who had mingled with his troops unperceived, leaped each up on the horse nearest to him, and not only threw the whole squadron into confusions by the terror they caused, but sprinting at the throat of their riders, unhorsed many of them by the suddenness of their attack, then, turning the horses to the rear, they spread consternation everywhere, and made it easy for Prince Mannequin to gain a complete victory. He met Brandedimor in a single combat, and succeeded in taking him prisoner, 
but he did not live to reach the court to which Manicat had sent him. His pride killed him and the thought of appearing before Sabella under these altered circumstances. In the meantime, Prince Fadasa and all the others who had remained behind were setting out with all speed for the conquest of the Ice Mountain, being afraid that Prince Manikin might prove as successful in that as he seemed to be in everything else. And when Manikin returned, he heard of with great annoyance. True, he had been serving the princess, but she only admired and praised him for his gallant deeds, and seemed no whit near bestowing on him the love he so ardently desired, and all the comfort Musta could give him on the subject that was at least she loved no one else, and with that he had to content himself. But he determined that, come with what might, he would delay no longer, but attempt the great undertaking for which he had come so far. When he went to take leave of the king and queen, they entreated him not to go, as they had just heard that Prince Fadasa and all who accompanied him had perched in the snow, but he persisted in his resolve. As for Sabella, she gave him her hand to kiss with precisely the same gracious indifference as she had given it to him at the first time they met. It happened that his farewell took place before the whole court, and so great a favorite had Prince Manikin become that they were in all indigent all the coldness with the princess treated him. Finally, the king said to him, Prince, you have constantly refilled all the gift words. In my gratitude for your invaluable services, I have offered to you, but I wish the princess to present you with her cloak of Merton's fur, and that I hope you will not reject. Now, this was a splendid fur mantle, which the princess was very fond of wearing, not so much because she felt cold, as its richness set off to perfection the delicate tints of her complexion and the brilliant gold of the hair. However, she took it off and with graceful politeness begged Prince Manikin to accept it, which you may be sure he was charmed to do, and take it only this and a little bundle of all kinds of wood, and accompanied only by two spaniels out of the fifty who, has st who had stayed with him when the war was ended. He set forth, receiving many tokens of love and favor from the people in every town he passed through, and the little last village he left his horse behind him to begin his toilful march through the snow, which extended blank and terrible in every direction as far as the eye could see. Here he had appointed to meet the other forty-eight spaniels, who received him joyfully, and assured him that, happened that might, they would follow and serve him faithfully. And so they started, full of heart and hope. At first there was a slight track, difficult, but not impossible to follow, but this was soon lost, and the pole star was their only guide. When the time came to call a halt, the prince, who had after much consideration, decided on his plan of action, caused a few twigs from the faggot he had brought with him to be planted in the snow, and then he sprinkled over them a pinch of the magic powder he had collected from the enchanted boat. To his great joy, they instantly began to sprout and grow, and in marvelously short time, the camp was surrounded by a perfect grove of trees of all sorts, which blossomed and bore ripe fruit, so that all their wants were easily supplied 
and they were able to make huge fires to warm themselves. The princess then sent out several spaniels to reconnoiter, and they had the good luck to discover a horse laden with provisions stuck fast in the snow. They at once fetched their comrades and brought the spoil triumphantly into the camp, and, as it's considered principally of biscuits, not a spaniel among them was went supperless to sleep. In this way, they joined day by day and encamped safely at night, always remembering to take on a few branches to provide them with food and shelter. They passed by the way armies of those who had set up upon the perilous enterprise, who stood frozen stiffly, without sense of motion, but Prince Manikin strictly forbade that any attempt should be made to thaw them. So they went on, on more than three months, and day by day the ice mountain, which they had seen for a long time, grew clearer until at least they stood close to it and shuddered at its height and steepness. But by patience and perseverance they crept up foot by foot, aided by the fires of magic wood without which they must have perished in the intense cold, until presently they stood at the gates of the magnificent ice palace which grew the mountain, where, in deadly silence and icy sleep, lay the heart of Sabella. Now the difficulty became immense, for if they maintained enough heat to keep themselves alive, they were in danger every moment of melting the blocks of solid ice of which the palace was entirely built, and bringing the whole structure down upon his heads. But cautiously and quickly they traversed courtyards and halls, until they found themselves at the foot of vast throne, where upon a cushion of snow lay an enormous and brilliantly sparkling diamond, which contained the heart of the lovely Princess Sabella. Upon the lowest step of the throne was inscribed in icy letters, Whosoever thou art who by courage and virtue canst win the heart of Sabella, enjoy peacefully the good fortune which thou hast richly deserved. Prince Manikin bounded forward and had just strength left to grasp the precious diamond which contained all the combated in the world before he well in fell in insensible upon the snowy cushion. But his good spaniels lost no time in rushing to their rescue, and between them they bore him hastily from the hall, and not a moment too soon, for all around them they heard the clang of the fallen blocks of ice as the fairy palace slowly collapsed under the unwanted heat. Not until they reached the foot of the mountain did they pause the restore of the prince's consciousness, and then his joy to find himself the possessor of Sabella's heart knew no bounds. With all speed they began to retrace their steps, but this time the happy prince could not bear the sight of his defeated and disappointed rivals, whose frozen forms lined his triumphant way. He gave orders to his spaniels to spare no pains to restore them to life, and so successful were they that the day by day his train increased, so that by the time he got back to the little village where he had left his horse, he was escorted by five hundred sovereign princes and knights and squares without number, and he was so courteous and unassuming that they all followed him willingly, anxious to do him honor, 
But then he was so happy to blissful himself that he found it easy to be at peace with all the world. It was not long before he met the faithful Musta, who was coming at the top of his speed hoping to meet the prince, that he might tell him of the sudden and wonderful change that he could hope over the princess who had become gentle and thoughtful and had talked to him of nothing but Prince Mannequin, of the hardships she feared he might be suffering, and of their, her anxiety for him, and all this with hundred fonder expressions, which put the finishing stroke to the prince's delight. Then came a courier, bearing the congratulations of the king and queen, who had just heard of his successful return, and there was even a graceful compliment from Sabellus herself. The prince sent Musta back to her, and he was welcomed with joy, for was he not her lover's present? At last the travelers reached the capital and were received with regal magnificence. Father Kimbras and Birbantin embraced Prince Mannequin, declaring that they regarded him as their heir and the future husband of the princess, to which he replied that they did not did him too much honor. And then he was admitted into the presence of the princess, for who, the first time in her life, blushed as he kissed her hand and could not find a word to say. But the prince, throwing himself on his knees beside her, held out the splendid diamond, saying, Madam, this treasure is yours, since no of the dangers and difficulties I have gone through have been sufficient to make me deserve it. Oh, prince, said she, if I take it, it's only that I may give it back to you, since truly it belongs to you already. At this moment in came the king and queen, and interrupted them by asking all the questions imaginable, and not infrequently the same over and over again. It seems that there is always one thing that is sure to be said about an event by everybody, and Prince Mannequin found that the question which he was asked by more than a thousand people on this particular occasion was, And didn't you find it very cold? The king had come to request Prince Mannequin and the princess to follow him to the council chamber, which they did, not knowing that he meant to present the prince to all the nobles assembled there as his son-in-law and successor. But when Mannequin perceived his intention, he begged permission to speak first, and told his whole story, even to the fact that he believed himself to be a peasant son. Scarcely he had finished speaking when the sky grew black, the thunder growled, and the lightning flashed, and in the blaze of light the good fairy Genista suddenly appeared. Turning the prince mannequin, she said, I am satisfied with you, since you have shown not only courage, but a good heart. Then she addressed King Father Kimbras, and informed him of the real story of the prince, and how she had determined to give him the education she knew would be best for a man who was to command others. You have already found the advantage of having a faithful friend, she added to the prince. And now you will have the pleasure of seeing King Bayard and his subjects regain their natural forms as a reward for his kindness to you. Just then arrived a chariot drawn by eagles, which proved to contain the foolish king and queen, who embraced their long-lost son with great joy, and were greatly struck with the fact that they did indeed find him covered with fur. 
while there were a caressing Sabella and wring her hands, which is a favorite form of endearment for foolish people. Chariots were seen approaching from all points of the compass, containing numbers of fairies. Seer, said Genista to Farda Kimbras, I have taken the liberty of appointing your court as a meeting place for all the fairies who could spare the time to come, and I hope you can arrange to hold the great ball, which we have once in hundred years on this occasion. The king, having suitably acknowledged the honor done him, was next reconciled to Gorgonzola, and they two presently opened the ball together. The fairy Mersantine restored their natural forms to King Boyard and all his subjects, and he appeared once more a handsome, akin as you could wish to do see. One of the fairies immediately dis dispatched her chariot for the Queen and the Spice Islands, and their wedding took place at the same time as the Prince of Mannequin and the lovely and gracious Sabella. They lived happily after ever afterwards, and their West Kingdoms were presently divided between their children. The prince, out of grateful remembrance of the princess Sabella's first gift to him, bestowed the right of bearing her name upon the most beautiful of the Martins, and that is why they all call it Sables to this day. Thank you for listening to this great story. Make sure to subscribe, head us to your favorite channels, leave a like, and share your thoughts about the story in the comments.